Brendan O'Connor on RTE Radio 1, sponsored by Timber Living Log Cabins. For your perfect workspace, living space or hideaway, timberliving.ie. And someone else um, who, if I was to say she has had an interesting career, would also be an understatement, is my next guest, Keelan Gallagher, KC, the London-based human rights lawyer. Good afternoon and welcome. Hello, lovely Happy to see you. Happy New Year. What are you up to tonight? Uh, well, family. Uh, just spending some time with my kids, uh, with my um, cousins. And we're going to Dunleary having hot chocolates, walking on the pier. So quite tame, <laughs> uh, but lots of fun. As what happens when you sort of head into middle age. Uh, what, what was it, Gron, you were saying? Just knowing that there's somewhere where you can have a seat. Um, <laughs> we know you, Keelan, through so much of your work. The Hillsborough Families, 7-7 uh, London Bombings Inquest. You've re- represented like people like Ibrahim Halawa um, and the son of the murdered Maltese journalist Daphne uh, Caruana Galizia and so many other high-profile cases. Bring me back, had you had you always planned to go into law? Was it kind of a, 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 a dream that you had? No, is the short answer. Uh, so um, all through growing up in Portmarnock, you know, I was a bit of a bookworm quite liked arguing, uh, was a child actor, you know, so had a, a an interest in words, an interest in arguing, an interest in performance. And I suppose all those things do kind of come together in the job that I now do. But uh, I, I suppose the main thing is, from a fairly early age, I was sure I wanted to do something that made a difference, but I wasn't really sure what that was. So I went through a whole phase of wanting to be a writer you know, stalking various writers by writing to them uh, from the age of four. Who did you write to? Well, I wrote to Roald Dahl when I was four. Did you? Uh, did you um, reply? Yeah, I did actually get a reply. Um, so yeah, so I, I, for a long time, I definitely wanted to be a writer and I wanted to do acting. Um, and I went through a phase where I was fairly sure I wanted to do something that was social justice related, but I wasn't sure what it was. And to be honest, you know, growing up 1970s, 1980s Ireland, or growing up 1970s, 1980s anywhere, um, you know, human rights lawyer was not on your list of jobs. You know, it's not like being a Garda or being a teacher or a job you could see um, and you could think of it as a, as a thing what that was you could it, aim towards. What was it in the back of your conscience? Because again, um, I think we're fairly, say we were contemporaries, both studied law yeah. and around the same time. And even if it wasn't called human rights law, like when you think of what was happening in the north and yeah. all of the big cases that were happening down south, there was certainly a human rights dimension to what definitely. was happening around us. Yeah, definitely. And I was very interested in those issues for a long time. And, you know, you look back now and I can think of definite moments which I can see as being really seminal. Uh, you know, so one of them is um, when I was very young, I read um, When Hitler Stole Pink Rabbit, you know, uh, Judith Kerr's amazing yeah. book. And just being so outraged at the injustice of what had happened and thinking about how can you seek justice for people who've experienced something like this. Um, And then all through teenage years, I was fairly sure that I wanted to do something um, that had an impact and that made a difference and that helped people. And that brought you to UCD, where you you did study law. I did study law in UCD, that's right. And, uh, you know, throughout my time, UCD, really inspiring time to be in UCD in the mid-1990s. And um, I really felt I'd found my tribe, you know, with a lot of my friends there, um, surrounded by very inspiring, brilliant people. Um, And all through that time, I was very interested in uh, human rights law in various ways, you know, in how it manifested itself in constitutional law and criminal law. Um, so I still didn't have as a definite job title, you know, this is what I want to do. It's one of those things, I think, when you look back on your career, looking backwards, you can join all the dots yeah. together and it makes sense. But, but at, at the, the time, time, you're just putting yeah. one foot in front of the other and doing what makes sense. Something happened to you when you were in college that was life changing for you. 
Uh, yeah, that's right. So in um, autumn 1996, uh, I had a very bad road traffic accident. So I was um, hit by a car at about 45 miles an hour uh, just outside UCD. Um, I, I spent most of a year in a wheelchair and I was very, very lucky to survive it. And actually, my uh, mum used to be a nurse in Vincent's. She'd subsequently retrained as a teacher. But one of her jobs when she was at Vincent's many years ago um, in the 70s had been she quite often was the person who had to make the death call to someone when someone had been killed. And they would not tell people on the phone that their child had been killed. They would say, something's happened, it's very serious, you need to come in. And then they'd break the news in person. And my mum in Port Marnock got a call, which she was fairly sure was a and death she, call. She, she knew the code. Uh, she did. And she yeah. came over to the whole way, you know, from the north side, the yeah. whole way over um, to Vincent's just by UCD, uh, completely sure that I'd died. And uh, I, I was incredibly lucky to survive it. So I was very smashed up, if I can put it that way. You know, so broke both my legs in multiple places, broke my ribs, you know, had a head injury, the, the ra- whole range. Um, but really... Did it give you a different perspective? We had an amazing conversation um, here yesterday with uh, people who'd been given second chances in life, including yeah. one man who had come back from a, a heart attack. And, you know, just talking about how that changed you. Did that change you, that experience? Uh, very much so. Um, so, you know, I just suddenly felt that the universe had given me a second chance, really. And uh, to be honest, uh, I should have died in October 1996 and didn't. So uh, I spent a bit of time campaigning around disability rights and, you know, felt very ashamed that I hadn't noticed a whole range of issues about accessibility, even in UCD, you know, at the time, which was a campus built in the 1960s. Uh, you know, even still, you would find a huge range of problems uh, on campus about getting access to different places. I was studying law in Roebuck Castle, yeah. uh, so not a very accessible building. No. Um, I've got to say, it, it was also one of those things, if you ever wanted to skip a lecture, it was very noticeable when you were the person in a wheelchair <laughs> for whom they made a whole series of adjustments. But that was definitely a life-changing experience for me. Um, were you an activist at college? You know, there's obviously a a great sort of synergy between politics and law. Like, I mean, did you get involved in student politics or student activism? Yeah, so I was very involved in a whole range of different human rights issues uh, throughout um, university. So, you know, I was a very active member of uh, the Irish Council for Civil Liberties, for example. Um, I, I was very interested, going back to the whole kind of being a wordsmith and being interested in that, I, I'd been uh, very involved over a long period of time in issues to do with writers in prison, those kind of things. So I was involved in that. I was never uh, particularly involved in student politics uh, in UCD. I was very involved in the LNH, the Literary and Historical Society, Um, you know, spent time at Dramsock and things. But in terms of student politics, I was only really involved in it in terms of welfare. So I um, worked with the amazing John Nisbet when he was welfare officer, um, who's a very good friend. And uh, after my experience as well, I did a lot of work around trying to get better support for disabled students who weren't getting good enough support at the time. You you could have gone the well-trodden path that many people, you did go to London, you did go to Cambridge and obviously so many Irish people, you know, you pick all those magic circle law firms and they're there. Um, you could have gone that route, arguably, but you ended up actually going back to your civil liberties route, but again at a a very transformative time in the UK. Yeah, that's right. So uh, after I finished UCD, um, I studied at King's Inns uh, for two years part time. I was teaching at the time in UCD and Trinity and I'm probably sounding like a bit of a gadfly, you know, unsure what I was doing. (laughs) But I really loved teaching. I found teaching very inspiring and I loved my time teaching students in UCD and in Trinity uh, at that time. And I was absolutely sure then that I wanted to be a barrister. 
So my intention had been to go to the bar in Ireland, um, but I decided to take uh, an extra year just to deepen my knowledge and experience on human rights and civil liberties issues. So uh, I went for a year. How many people have yeah. said that? You know, you go for a year and suddenly 20 yeah. years later, here you are. But I went for a year in September 2001 to Cambridge um, to spend a um, year just deepening my knowledge on human rights. And of course, <clears throat> within days of arriving, um, we had 9-11. So, you know, suddenly studying uh, human rights and civil liberties and what restrictions governments can place on human rights and civil liberties and also cross-border issues about protection of rights internationally uh, came into really stark relief. And you went on to actually to work for Liberty, which is the That's UK right. kind of the National Council for Civil Liberties. So it was actually you came into that role when these issues were were not theoretical, they were very live. Yeah, they were extremely live. So I, I worked with um, National Council for Civil Liberties then, Liberty, yeah. um, until 2005 and actually it really bookending. So I started my time in Cambridge with what happened with 9-11 and then seeing the horrors of 9-11, what it did to the bereaved families, but then also how it changed societies. And, you know, you look, Guantanamo Bay is still open mm-hmm. now. You know, you still have ongoing effects of the measures which were brought in, many of which were very draconian and disproportionate at the time to try to tackle the scourge of terrorism, which have huge ramifications, you know, and still. Which have, and which, as we know, have come so much more closer to home. They're no longer yeah. in sort of, you know, third countries. So, for example, like the, as at the uh, Jean Charles de Menez in London, that yeah. was a big... Did you work on that? Yeah, so I was, my time at Liberty, I was doing policy work, but also doing work in the European Court of Human Rights. And just being very frank, you know, um, many listeners will know that uh, Ireland's Strasbourg scorecard is not quite the same as the UK's. And if you want to become an expert in doing work in the European Court of Human Rights, you know, frankly, at the time, uh, being in the UK was a good place to do that because the UK was constantly being brought to the European Court of Human Rights and losing cases in the European Court of Human Rights. So I acted in many of those cases on a whole range of issues, including, you know, um, DNA databases and uh, rights of protesters and so on. Uh, But uh, summer 2005 is when the uh, seven seven bombings happened and uh, very shortly thereafter you had again very similar pattern to what you saw in 2001 uh, with the response to 9-11 you had uh, a criminal justice response uh, which ended up criminalising certain types of communities so you saw a real rise in Islamophobia for example and then uh, we saw the horrendous death of Jean Charles de Menezes mm. completely innocent Brazilian man uh, who was in the wrong place and at the wrong time remind us what happened to him So uh, he was, in a case of mistaken identity, he was shot dead because it was understood that he was a terrorist when he wasn't. And uh, one of my subsequent colleagues in Dowdy Street Chambers, uh, Henrietta Hill, uh, KC, who's now become a High Court judge, uh, acted for his bereaved family in trying to seek justice. But I I think those bookends of, you know, going over to Cambridge with 9-11 and what 9-11 meant uh, for human rights and civil liberties and what it meant for bereaved families, uh, you know, that was the start of that. And then uh, 2005, when I moved to the bar and stopped working at Liberty, was just after what had uh, happened with 7-7 and, and, you get into and one of, you got into one of the most, you know, distinguished um, human rights chambers. We don't have a chamber system um, in Ireland like we have in the UK, but very, very difficult uh, to get into that. And as a result of that, your work, it just seemed you were suddenly working on so many more high profile and high risk uh, you know, cases that you're working on. I know we mentioned Keir Starmer earlier, uh, lots about him in the UK papers today, but um, what was it like working with him? Yeah, I mean, he's a very inspiring person and a mm. great lawyer. So, um, you know, these were people I'd admired from afar and I, I still, 
2023, uh, pinch myself that I'm working at Doughty Street Chambers because throughout my time at UCD and then throughout my time at Liberty, I was a great admirer of work that barristers at Doughty Street were doing. So, you know, when I was in UCD, I read um, Eve Was Framed, a really life-changing, inspirational book about how women operate in a world that's coded male uh, by Baroness Helena Kennedy, who's now a really close personal friend and a colleague. You know, I just think, can't begin to imagine what my, uh, you know, 20-year-old self would have thought about that back in 1996, you know, that suddenly she's a friend. But Keir Starmer, uh, Edward Fitzgerald, Geoffrey Robertson were all people who were doing really life-changing things with the law. I mean, Keir and Edward at the time uh, when I joined Doughty Street had, um, not quite single-handedly, with a very good team, um, you know, they had uh, succeeded in abolishing the death penalty in a number of countries around the world. So I, I came to Daddy Street at a very inspiring time in 2005. But you, you've, it's a privilege to be there. And you've worked with amazing lawyers, like, I mean, including Amal Clooney, who just happens to have a very famous husband, but um, <laughs> a really a, a distinguished lawyer in in her own right. And, and they, Amal and George Clooney, have become close friends of you as well. Yeah, so, I mean, Amal is a brilliant lawyer, really brilliant and, uh, and a good friend. And we work together at the moment on a case we... Um, the Nobel Laureate. Uh, Maria Ressa, yeah. yeah. So we're um, leading an international team uh, acting for Maria Ressa, who won the Nobel Peace Prize a number of years ago for her journalism, along with the Russian journalist Dmitry Muratov. And Maria Ressa is one of those incredibly inspiring, brilliant people. And it's a privilege uh, to act for her. And it's also a privilege to be working so closely with Amal and seeing her lawcraft up front. Yeah. Um, you know, and similarly, uh, George, you know, the first time you meet him, you've got to pinch yourself a bit because it's George Clooney, but now he's just George. And the work they do with the Clooney Foundation is incredible on human rights around the world. Look, there are plenty of people who have privilege who don't ever use it. And it's well, wonderful to be working with and to be friends with people who have privilege and decide they're going to put their money where their mouth is well, and I, their influence where their yeah. mouth is to try to change the world for the better. Can I ask you about that question of privilege? Because the legal world is often perceived to be very closed and exclusive um, that, you know, you need, you know, even here in Ireland, you know, people say unless you're you're living at home with people in Dublin or, you know, just the sheer cost of, of getting through law school or King's Inns or whatever it is. But also it's not just class, but other barriers for, for women and um, and even for minorities and others. Was it tough as a woman trying to make your way through? Uh, the last time I saw you was in London where you were speaking to a group of awestruck female, young female <laughs> lawyers who were marvelling at how you managed to have children and continue the work that you do. Yes, yeah, so I suppose just starting at the beginning, um, you know, it is right that there are huge barriers to entry to law as a profession and to many other professions, including journalism. Um, and unfortunately, in England and Wales, we still have uh, there in England and Wales a persisting problem with um, access to the highest echelons of the profession uh, for women, for people of colour and so on. And look, that's in both Ireland and in England and Wales and many other jurisdictions across the Council of Europe for many years. We've now had equal entry to the legal profession for quite a long period of time. But it's a pyramid, you know, where... You've got equal entry for men and women at the bottom level. But, when but as you get higher and higher, um, it becomes much more pale, stale male. Now, that is less true of Ireland than it is of England and Wales. I mean, so Ireland uh, has actually made great strides on gender diversity in the last number of years. So, you know, last year in uh, winter 2022, uh, Sarah Phelan, SC, yeah. 
um, chair of the Bar Council, you know, was very pleased to mark that there was 20% of silks of senior council in Ireland were women. Now, of course, 20% is too low. It should be higher, but that's quite a significant milestone. But where there's been a lot of very positive change has been in the judiciary. 42% of the judiciary in Ireland are women. Uh, and in the solicitor's profession, the Law Society of Ireland has done really superb work and has been, uh, you know, first in class but across it, I mean, Europe it's, it's tough on those for a, issues. It's tough for anyone at the bar, but it's even tougher for women, especially where they do want to, to have family. Did you encounter any um, sexism on the way up? Uh, short answer is yes and uh, when it happens it's like a gut punch you know you're not mm. particularly expecting it and um, I uh, was very lucky to get into to Daddy Street and to be there and there are some things about the chamber system that make it a bit easier if you're not from a background um, that has kind of privilege or legal connections for example because uh, you know you go in you do get um, paid uh, not a huge amount, but you get paid. Uh, you've got clerks who do your billing for you. You've got headed notepaper. You don't need, you're not completely starting from scratch, although you are self-employed. But where it really starts um, to pinch is uh, as soon as you start thinking about having a family or pregnancy or, or childbirth, then it gets very difficult because bottom line as a barrister is you're self-employed and there's no maternity leave. You know, there's no arrangements. It's like being a freelancer or self-employed in any other profession. And um, that's when it began to get very difficult. And I'll just give you one example. Sometimes the sexism that you experience um, isn't uh, as overt as you might think. There's a lot of what I would call soft sexism. So one example is... Yeah, so when I was pregnant with my um, daughter, who's now 15... I uh, had a colleague who was well-meaning, an older male silk, you know, who said to me one day, um, oh, uh, one of our solicitors called earlier and he said he was going to be giving you a brief, like a really interesting case. But um, I said to him, oh, no, Keelan's actually pregnant and she's very tired at the moment. So uh, the brief had vanished and had gone elsewhere. You know, and what do you do as a self-employed person? Like ring up the solicitor to say, I'm not actually tired and where's the non-existent case? You know, you can't do anything about it. There's no HR department you can go to to deal with that. So I've got to say when I was uh, pregnant with my second child, I've got three kids, um, I kept it quiet for a long time and I was actually doing the... Uh, 7-7 London bombings inquest uh, while I was pregnant with Oshin. And, you know, there's always those um, studies. I don't know if you've ever heard about those studies where, you know, babies who've heard like the Coronation Street music in the womb react to it. I do always wonder what it's done to Oshin's brain that all through me being pregnant with him, he was hearing, you know, this... And the findings were came fairly soon after that. So had you given birth at that point? Uh, yeah, I had. So um, I was 39 weeks pregnant when the uh, inquest finished, the evidence finished. Um, and then uh, Oshin was six weeks old when we got the conclusions. So the judgment, essentially. So uh, I had an experience of uh, breastfeeding a very tiny baby just outside the courtroom, kind of dashing in, putting on a suit, you know, just when your body doesn't feel like your own and it all feels very alien um, to go in to get the conclusions and then um, managing to get out to my very supportive husband who was uh, hanging around outside the the Royal Courts of Justice um, to Oshin immediately afterwards. But these are things that you do. I mean, I've now got three kids and managing a practice which involves a lot of international travel as well. And it's hard. Uh, But one thing I always try and remind myself is every time you find it difficult when you're getting up very early in the morning or when you're uh, you know, travelling away for work and you're away from family at a time that you don't really want to be away from them. I just think about how much worse it is for my clients, you know, because when I was doing the Hillsborough inquest, for example, um, you know, I was really feeling it when I was away from the kids during the week. And actually, I did think, you know, 
it, it spurred me on to think, well, actually, I'm representing families, you know, who had kids who never came home, went to a football match and never came home. So you've got to just turn what you're feeling into something that makes you do your job better. And similarly, you know, at the moment, I'm doing a lot of cases which involve um, either bereaved families or people who are imprisoned for being human rights activists or journalists worldwide, you know, who are separated from their families. And, you know, really, every time you feel that kind of pinch of I'm away from my kids for a few hours or a couple of days, you know, you've just got to think, well, how much worse is it for the people I'm representing? And a lot of people feel powerful in or powerless in the face of uh, the legal system. But a lot of the work you've done, I don't know whether it was strategic cases or cases that were coming to you naturally where you've actually affected quite significant law changes in, in the in the UK. Well, thank you uh, for, for putting it that way. Yeah, um, it's I do think law can be a strategic tool for change and I'm very privileged and lucky to have been able to work on some campaigns which have done that both in the UK and internationally. So um, I mean one example which really uh, sticks out for me is uh, I worked with the a number of 17 year olds who'd been wrongly imprisoned um, in the UK and bereaved families of 17 year olds who'd taken their own lives after they'd been imprisoned. Uh, to change the law. At the time, the Home Secretary was Theresa May, uh, who you may have heard of uh, from other contexts. And Theresa May was the Home Secretary. And at the time, in England and Wales, they treated 17-year-olds as if they were adults adults, um, rather than children. Strip-searching them, putting them through all of the... Yeah, if you were arrested as a 17-year-old, you were strip-searched without any support. You didn't get what's called an appropriate adult person to provide you with any uh, additional uh, support. You could be held for very long time and I acted for an amazing young man called Hughes Chang um, who's a young black boy from South London who was coming home from school with his friend um, on a bus um, one day in the afternoon doing absolutely nothing wrong and him and his friend uh, on the basis that they fitted the description which seemed to be being black and young and in the wrong place at the wrong time they got arrested and they were detained until the early hours of the following morning. Now Hughes was strip searched, so was his friend. Uh, they weren't allowed to call their parents or to have their parents notified and told where they were. Uh, and they weren't given basic supports that would have been given to them if they were 16. And they were just kids. And actually, Hughes's mother uh, became very alarmed when he didn't come home from school. And uh, she didn't find out where he was till about two in the morning. And she'd reported him as a missing person. I mean, it's just astonishing that this could happen and did happen very recently. So after this happened, Hughes ends up being cleared and so on. And there's no charges against him because he did nothing wrong, which they could have checked immediately if they just looked at his Oyster card, which would show he'd come out from school, he'd gone on the bus, he was just on his way home. Um, But they hadn't made those basic checks. And you then have a very young man, in fact, a child under international law, recognised as a child under the UN Convention on the Rights of the Child and other standards, who's detained in these terribly frightening circumstances. And Hughes, after this happened, thought, I'm not putting up with this. You know, I'm going to try and get a change to the law. And we brought Theresa May to court uh, successfully to get the law changed to recognise the 17-year-olds or children. Now, when we started doing that case, we didn't actually know that there'd been a number of families who'd lost their 17-year-olds after experiences like this. And it's through bringing the case and the profile of the case that we then got contacted. I was working with a charity called Just For Kids Mm -hmm. Law. We got contacted by the families of two um, boys 
um, Joe Lawton and Eddie Thornburgh, uh, both of whom had been arrested uh, for minor offences. One of them was um, he'd been arrested for possessing 50 P's worth of cannabis and he was a very talented lacrosse player and he was due to be going to the US to university and he again strip searched parents not told he's not given supports and to a 17 year old in those circumstances when you know you've got a US sports scholarship you think it's the end of the world you've no perspective so he was then left to walk home from the police station uh, which took him about eight hours walking Uh, arrived home didn't tell his parents where he'd been his parents thought he was quite withdrawn didn't know what was happening the first they knew uh, of what had happened to him was when they got his suicide note a number of days later when he said I've really let you down And, you know, he thought it was the end of the world. So those two families came together to say changing the law is so important. And um, I represented the uh, family of uh, Joe Lawton uh, in an inquest as well. So through the case that Hughes Chang brought and the work of the inquest, we got uh, the law changed. And we subsequently found out with the family of another 17-year-old amazing uh, girl called Cassia Leatherbarrow, who'd been in mental health crisis and had been detained over a bank holiday weekend for three days in a police cell. And she had been detained for self-harming. So she'd been arrested for public order offences when she was self-harming in public. And uh, she was detained and then she took her own life. So those three families have all come together as part of that campaign. And the result of the campaign now is the law has changed. 17-year-olds are now treated as children, not adults. And that means 50,000 17-year-olds every year are not treated in the way that Hughes, Eddie, Joe and Cassia were. The uh, But a, a law change extracted at such a high um, personal um, price. Can I ask you about the toll on you as a lawyer? Because a lot of the high-profile cases, including um, the Hong Kong activist Jimmy Lai, have, have brought you to the attention of Chinese intelligence, but they've also um, threatened your own security. Do you yeah. do you worry about the vicarious impacts just as a, a human, a mom, a, a parent, a, a sister, whatever, um, and then also just the fact that presumably you must be on several watch lists at this stage because of the work that you do? Uh, yeah, so I suppose first and most important thing that I want to say is, um, you know, as, as a lawyer, the most important person is my client. And um, So I always just want to say that it's really important to say it because you're right to raise the issue about the impact on lawyers and, you know, the impact on me in some of my cases. But actually, the most important thing and the thing I always want to centre is my clients. And if you have, you know, a state like China or like Iran or like Egypt going after you because of work that you're doing, well, first of all, I think it probably shows you're rattling the right cages, but it also shows how much uh, they must really have a problem with your client. So um, with my international work for a long period of time, you know, you do have to be more careful with travel, for example. So I've acted for... Uh, Where would you not be going on holidays? Yeah, uh, well, that's, that's a long list, I'm afraid. So... Um, you know, so for example, uh, I, I obviously can't go to a range of countries where yeah. I've acted for people uh, and I'm on watch list like Iran or Saudi Arabia or Russia. Um, not particular holiday destinations mm. for many people, I would think. Um, but also say somewhere like Egypt. So I, I've acted for a very large number of people who were uh, detained in Egypt and secured the release of a number of um, people who were imprisoned in Egypt over the years. And uh, I know I'm on lists in Egypt. So it, it's very difficult to mm. travel safely. I did travel... Um, to Egypt a number of years ago doing trial monitoring for um, a case and it was held at the airport for a lengthy period of time which is real heart and mouth 
stuff. Uh, but it ended up being okay. And I've had the same thing uh, when traveling to Kuwait as well. Um, but what's really happened in the last number of years is there's a new trend with a number of states who now are trying to flex their muscles outside their borders. So I know earlier with the paper review, you were talking about Iran, for example. Mm-hmm. I act for a large number of um, Iranian diaspora journalists who are based in a range of places around the world, mainly in the UK, but not exclusively um, who uh, are now experiencing a situation where they left Iran because they couldn't be journalists in Iran. They're now uh, doing vitally important work for all of us, you know, telling stories, stories about what's happening in Iran at a time when the world's eyes are rightly but on they Iran. they still face risks. Where they? And they face huge risks. And what's now happening is Iran is no longer content with targeting journalists within its own borders. Iran is now trying to use the long arm of the state to, thre- to threaten them. So uh, in January of this year, it was announced that there had been 15 attempts in uh, the UK to either kill or kidnap Iranian journalists and other critical voices that have been foiled by the security services in the past 13 months. So that's more than one a month. And uh, acting for the BBC News uh, Persian service, the BBC World Service, and for Iran International, I've acted for people who've had death threats and horrendous threats to their life. So I'll give you one example. An amazing woman called Rana Rahimpur, who uh, for a long time was one of the BBC World Service's main journalists reporting on Iran. She lives in London. Uh, her kids go to school in London. Uh, she received death threats to her, uh, rape threats to her, but also a rape threat to her eight-year-old daughter. And her daughter's school got contacted on a number of occasions uh, with false requests to allow the daughter to leave school early with quite sophisticated spoofs, which were actually uh, attempts to kidnap or target her daughter. So that's very frightening. So for many years, I've been working with my clients, having experiences like that. And what's really changed in the last kind of year and a half, I suppose, is that um, we as the international lawyers have also started being targeted in those ways ourselves. And the most extreme example of that is what China has been doing in relation to our work on the Jimmy Lai case. It's it's absolutely extraordinary. When I think of your work, I think of a, <laughs> a, kind of a next generation, uh, Mary Robinson, really kind of, you know, utilising the law and the strategic tools that you have to... I would to never have, use my name yeah. in the same breath as her. You know, she's a, and she's obviously somebody who I looked up to a huge amount yeah. um, earlier. Sorry to interrupt yeah. you. <laughs> but, you but, your, but your work has been um, um, lauded. You recently got the uh, Presidential Distinguished Service uh, Award for the Irish um, abroad. And we haven't quite let go of you because I know you're also um, working um, as the, uh, is it the children's, the working on the children's rights uh, commissioner? Yeah, so uh, in the last year I've been appointed to two. Rapporteur. That's right, yeah, I've been appointed to two uh, roles in Ireland which I'm very proud of and that are very important to me. So uh, one of them is uh, that I'm uh, the Irish government's special rapporteur on child protection. And I'm also a commissioner of the Irish Human Rights and, Equal- yeah. Human Rights and Equality Commission. So on the special rapporteur role, uh, children's rights has been an area of uh, my expertise for the last you know, two decades. It's something I've been doing yeah. a lot, both in the UK, but also internationally. And uh, I think it is a real credit to the Irish government that the Irish government has this role. So when I saw it advertised um, on publicjobs.ie, <laughs> I uh, decided to throw my hat in the ring and apply for it. And... 
uh, the idea of it really was to um, give something back, um, really, and use the expertise that I've kind of honed over the decades on children's rights work internationally and try and use that for benefit here. And what's always remarkable, Keelan, is just your your incredible humility <laughs> about it all. Um, it is great to have you home. I hope you had a great Christmas and New Year and best of luck in Dunleary with the hot chocolate uh, tonight. Uh, that is Keelan Gallagher at KC and we are going to take a really quick break. Email brendan at rte.ie 